I'm Will Ortel, Content Manager at CFA Institute, and I'm here in Chicago with Melissa Cook, who is the founder of African Sunrise Partners. And Africa, you know, in case you don't know, uh, is 28% of the world's countries, 13% of its UNESCO World Heritage Sites, 7.5% of its global landmass, and 3% of its GDP. Uh, Melissa is a member of the President's Council on Doing Business in Africa. She's got 25 years of buy and sell side experience, and she's a charter holder, daughter of a charter holder, and the brother and a sister, the sister and a brother also are turtles. Fantastic! So you got a kind of a background in this business. Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, so intuitively, it seems like you know, three percent of global GDP for Africa is a little low. Uh, <laughs> um, I mean, can you talk to me about the gap between the companies that have a deliberate and thoughtful Africa strategy uh, and the companies that kind of are passively or thoughtlessly experiencing this potential growth? Right. Too many people look at that 3% number and then they stop. They say it's not relevant, it's not going to matter. And our position is that the world's growth is coming from Africa for decades. You have 1.2 billion people now, 43% are under the age of 15. So these young people are coming up tech savvy, they expect their government to deliver, they are engaged voters, and they're the ones that will be driving growth. And they're very interested in technology and solutions. So. Companies that look at the continent and say, well, the numbers are too small and we have too many problems elsewhere, I think are missing that underlying groundswell of growth. The other thing that's really important, and, and this comes from my time spending, spent in China, companies coming out of China have a very different capital structure, very different cost structure, and a very different product proposition. So if you're an African buyer, you tend to be very price sensitive. We're talking about machinery or technology um, or anything in the healthcare space. So the Chinese companies are very aggressive and very competitive, and they also bring their own government financing, the XM type of financing. So what we see happening on the ground in Africa is really the battleground between whether it's Cisco and Huawei, GE and Shanghai Electric, Caterpillar versus Sani and Lugong. So there's this intense competition going on. The markets are already being served by somebody. Um, demand is greater than supply for everything, and companies that don't have a deliberate strategy to go in and figure out how are we going to going to assess the market, how are we going to compete, where should we put the actual hard capital on the ground, how do we make this happen for us, they may not be able to get in later on when it looks like Africa is 7 or 8% or 10% of world GDP. So the, I mean, you talk a lot about countries or companies that are running their Africa strategy out of an, a cozy office in London mm -hmm. or you know, maybe Paris or even Johannesburg. Uh, is that a good idea? It doesn't sound like it. You're just too far from the customer. Um, these distances are very, very large. So if you think about flying from Europe to Lagos or to Nairobi, it's not that bad. It's six or seven hours, but do you really want to be six or seven hours away from your key markets? If you're in Johannesburg, you're even more isolated. Um, South Africa is a very different type of economy, and it's still a six or seven hour flight from these major places. What we're hearing from more companies is that they're either shifting their, their operations to the Middle East which is better than Europe. It is a little bit closer, but it still is not good enough. More companies now are saying, okay, we'll set up a hub in Lagos and a hub in Nairobi or somewhere close to those.
Gotcha. Now, now the, the company, the, the competitive dynamics, China versus U.S. that you were talking about, you used the term stealth competitors in your mm -hmm. presentation. Mm -hmm. uh, you talk, let's talk through the competitive dynamics for something like a, you know, a cell phone uh, or, or a router or whatever. I mean, what, why are the, the products that the Chinese companies are coming to market with winning versus American uh, businesses or, or, or other businesses? American companies engineer for the high end of the market, and then they build down a little bit and defeature some of the products. So the ultimate high end iPhone 6 or 7 or whatever that is, is something that's going to get a lot of attention, very high margins, a lot of take up in the rich developed markets. But it's not the right product for the developing market. So why can't Apple just make a cheaper phone? Well, if you look at how the Chinese operate, you go to a Chinese factory, they have bare bones capital costs, they have bare bones labor, they have a lot of mechanization, and they come at it with the idea that the product can be good enough, doesn't have to be perfect. So if you have a truck starter, for example, it could last for 400,000 starts if it's a Bosch truck starter, or 150,000 starts if it's a Chinese truck starter. That engineering mentality and difference in pricing works through all the products. You also have, uh, for example, with Xiaomi versus Apple or versus Samsung, Innovations that are coming from people who understand how to sell to very, very large numbers of people who have very little money. So a phone that has uh, high power consumption, for example, will not do well in Africa because it's difficult to find electricity to charge the phone. Or uh, a router or a telepresence setup that requires large amounts of bandwidth. So a Cisco telepresence will require six megabits per second of bandwidth. Not a big deal here in the U.S., but it is, it's expensive in Africa. And the Huawei equivalent will require two megabits per second. So the buyers in these markets look at it and say, okay, this Huawei product may not be perfect, but it's good enough. And it's going to get me in a point where I can communicate with my people around the continent. This product, the Cisco product, or something more expensive, that's fantastic, but it isn't really necessary. Gotcha. Gotcha. So it's a, the, basically the wrong products for the market are, are exactly, showing Exactly. Exactly. You talk also a lot about the transition from the informal economy to the formal economy. Mm -hmm. now, it seems like that's more than just a dress code, right? The, uh, <laughs> we're, we're, <laughs> tell, tell me more about that. What are its impacts on corruption and mm -hmm. organization? Mm -hmm. Right. Most people in Africa work for themselves. A woman gets up in the morning, she sends her children to school, and she goes to the warehouse and she picks up the day's goods, whether it's cooking oil or soap or household products. She sets up her kiosk in the market, and she sells what she has, and then she takes the money and she goes home. Now, she's not paying into a pension plan. She's not paying taxes. She's probably been harassed all day by police saying, you know, why are you here? And she has no protection because she doesn't have a formal business. She's not building up any credit so that if she goes to a bank and tries to borrow money, she doesn't have any, anything really to show for it. So a lot of people get through the day that way, and some of them perform better than others. This is true in any commercial society. Um, but it's not the way to build stability. And if you don't have the connection between the taxpayer and the government, or if you don't have any kind of security for all those workers, it, it, it adds a level of instability to a country's political outlook. So a few things are happening. First of all, um, the disincentives to formalizing a company are starting to go away. So if it used to take you know, six months and 19 steps to actually incorporate a business, um, governments are paying a lot of attention to the World Bank doing business index and what are the metrics that cause countries to move up. So if you have a one-stop shop now like Rwanda has, you can go in, you can register your business, you can set up your tax ID number, and you can do everything in one building. And I've been there, it's fantastic, and it's, it's working. So that's one thing that people are doing. The other is to say, why do we have a regime that permits this type of harassment of people all the time? Because they're, they're not legal. So why don't we 
have a way for this woman to actually get a license. This is her spot, this is her kiosk, this is her license. And now she has a tax ID number and she can start paying taxes. Once she starts paying taxes, then she's going to go to the government and say, how come I have to sit in front of this big pothole filled with mud and I get splashed by it all day? You guys have to fix it. I'm paying taxes. You fix it. So it's that type of feedback loop that's very effective. The other thing is you're starting to see entrepreneurs um, get technical assistance or, or help in, in scaling up their business. So one of the things I think could be very exciting is when countries get electricity. Right now you can go into the marina market in Lagos, which is right behind the big bank buildings and it's next to a bus depot. And there are hundreds of small kiosks and people trying to sell things. They don't have electricity, they don't have lighting, they don't have paved streets. So if you can formalize some of that where there's electricity and some of these become more like a convenience store where there's refrigeration, there's lighting, you know, there, there's a proper structure, then you start having a greater amount of profitability. You can scale, you can create a brand, um, and it becomes a much more profitable and viable enterprise. Gotcha. Now, the, the, you asked the room a while ago, uh, you, I think it was the first question you asked, uh, how many of you have been to Africa? Pretty much everyone raised their hand. Mm -hmm. uh, and then how, how many of you actually invest in Africa? And I think three people raised their hand. Yeah. Um, and this is you know, 120 portfolio managers. Yeah. Uh, you know, and you know, your comment was there's a big gap between going to see the animals and, uh, and putting money to work there. Right. Um, is it just that the structures of the funds are existentially wrong? Like, what's that gap? Well, there are two things. First of all, when you go on safari, the last thing you want to think about is business, right? And the first couple of times I went, I didn't think about business. I was whisked from the airport to, you know, to the vehicle and the plane and the tent and the animals, and it was fantastic, and I never thought about it. But after we went back a couple of times, I started to notice that there were new shopping centers and new billboards and more traffic, and I love finding markets where nobody else is there yet. So that was what got me curious about how to do business in Africa. Um, and I was ready for a career change, and so for me personally, it just kind of worked that way. But a lot of people then will go on safari and come home and never think twice about whether there's business, or if they become aware that there's business, um, they might hear from one of their neighbors or friends, oh, it's too scary, or there's a story on, you know, on the news that talks about you know, starving children with guns in front of bombed-out buildings, and unfortunately there are still those scenes on the continent. But more and more people are now starting to say, okay, I understand that that's not all of it. I understand the 1.2 billion people with the young population. I understand that this is a growth area. So now what do I do? Well, the reality is it's very challenging to do the research. And that's what I do. I mean, it's putting many, many miles on my American Airlines <laughs> Advantage account. But somebody's got to go do that research. So that's a step people have to decide that they want to take. They have to think about the strategic imperative, this battleground of competition that we've talked about, and then they have to think about what the clients have hired them to do, and do they have a mandate that allows them to invest in Africa. So once people get through all that, then they start actually looking at the numbers, and they realize the capital markets on the continent are still very small. So if you're running a $10 billion portfolio, it's very challenging to get positions that are big enough. I think this is going to change, and what I emphasize is that that's not enough reason not to do it, because capital markets are professionalizing, they're migrating toward global technology standards, global regulatory, custody transfer, disclosure, all these things are, are becoming global standard. So I think it's only a matter of time until the local markets have much more to, to offer. I also see multinationals and I see some other companies that have big Africa exposure where you can invest indirectly mm -hmm. through those equities or, or some other way. Yeah, and it sounds like you know, kind of getting in, you know, now or even a couple of years ago is the move. Because I think you said uh, G is a hundred years ahead of everyone else in yep. Africa. Yeah. 
That, that sounds like an awfully nice competitive advantage. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So thank you so much for coming to, to tell us about it. The, uh, the Melissa Cook from Africa Sunrise Partners. I'm Will Ortel. Thank you for watching the Take 15 series. Copyright 2015 CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.